again. In the greatest experiment of all. The other two prepare to meet their first deadly challenge together. With grim determination. On your left, hello and welcome to our first bonus episode of your favourite podcast, Colin Brain versus the MCU. We are 12, yes, 12 films into this journey into the MCU. We have just finished phase two of the Infinity Saga from Marvel Studios and in a slight break from our usual programming, we are going back in time a little bit to 2002, to a year when the Euro became the official currency of the EU, the year Brazil won the World Cup, and the year a record-breaking superhero film was released to the world. And that very film happens to be the film we are watching today. Yes, we are here to discuss Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Now, before we kick off proceedings with great podcasts comes great hosts. You know, he's something of a scientist himself. If science to you is coming up with god-awful jingles and improvised songs, it's Robert Trot. Rob, say hello. How am I? You sure you want to know? Oh. The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> if someone told you I was your average, ordinary guy, not a care in the world, then someone lied. Very well done. On brand, on brand. <laughs> and secondly, a man as pure and as lovable as Peter Parker himself all until he was bitten by a radioactive beard, and now look at the state of him. It's Colin Brain. Colin, say hello. A radioactive beard? I want to see what that is. I yeah, need that. I, I need the imagery. <laughs> I can't picture that. What is it? I don't got, God knows. And how it has teeth and it's bit you, I have no idea. You could have said like a bearded spider or something. You know, I'm sure there's a wow. spider out there with a beard. Is something called a bearded dragon? No, have I made that no, up? No, there is a bearded dragon. but no, That's a lizard, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I could be lizard boy. Oh, is there a lizard man with a beard? I don't know, maybe. You know, there's, there may be lizard men. There should be. Coming future. soon to the MCU, we, we can't say. <laughs> Who knows? So, uh, Rob, how are you this week? I'm so high, I can hear heaven. Oh. Oh. Yep. I, I will get stop. It. Okay. Colin, he has referenced. Go on, I, got, <laughs> I, I won't explain your reference. You can explain. Originally, I was hoping you were going to say, Rob, how are you? And I was going to say, how am I? The story of my life is not for... And so on. But you didn't say, how are you? So I did anyway. And then you asked, Rob, how are you? And I went to my backup, which was <laughs> referencing the classic, in quotation marks, Chad Kroger and Josie Wales, is it? Yeah, you no one knew who that was. Josie Wales. No. Was, wasn't he in Seaver? I can't and you 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 put those quotations in the bin, my friend. That is no, a stone cold classic. I refuse. Chad Kroger is evil. That that song was on Kerrang every five minutes. Man, in that my video childhood. is ingrained in my memory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I, I'm 
how Colin feels about ACDC, I feel about Chad Kroger as well. Oh, mate, I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. Probably even more so than Any, ACDC. Anyone who sings a song about being a rock star oh. that can, without feeling weird, be on an advert for DFS in the UK <laughs> is not a rock star. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Colin, are you well? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Thank you. Thanks for good. asking. Uh, so have you seen Spider-Man before, or has this been completely erased from your memory like everything else you seem to have watched in the last 20 years? Oh, no, this one stuck with me. Yeah, no, this mm. was a... I mean, this came out when I was a kid, man, and I think I even had it on DVD. So it's had... I mean, I don't want to say multiple watches because... You know, you guys do multiple watches of things. I'd maybe say like two or three, maybe maybe four. This could have been the fourth or fifth. Um, but th- I mean, I haven't watched it in years. Good. So this is going to be the first in a small series of bonus episodes where we'll be sporadically dropping them throughout the year. That's kind of, that's what the kids say nowadays, isn't sporadically. it? Like I'm trying to be cool when I hate that I said it. No, not sporadically. The word dropping, you knobheads. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I hate it when they say, oh, so-and-so's new single has just dropped. Just say released. Dickheads. Right, sorry, nah, back to my notes. Don't be so... No. You're just a boomer, mate. That's your problem. Oh, here we go. I just I hate it when you, you say... Were literally, oh, you were literally on the phone to someone before we started this, asking them how to reset your internet. No, you've misheard, <laughs> you've misheard no, that. I haven't misheard anything. I was lazy and I was asking someone to reset my internet, not how to. I said, I said, do you know how to reset the internet? They said no, so I went downstairs. Were you calling a 90 year If someone wrote how to reset a router on the side of a bus, I bet he'd know how to do it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> True. Okay, so back to my notes before, <laughs> before that slight diversion. Uh, so these episodes, at least this is the plan. They're going to be short and sweet. Um, we're not going to do a deep dive into the film, more of a shallow paddle. Uh, but we'll be keeping the trivia segment because most of you seem to enjoy the pain that it causes me. So sticking true to my word, here we go again. If you, could, if you boys could be so kind to already provide me the floor... As I give a background to the film, to both Colin and our listeners. And yet again, Colin, any questions, please fire away. I shall try keep it brief, but mm, you know what I'm like. I can't promise anything. So, in the early 80s, uh, Spider-Man was like a massively popular superhero for Marvel Comics. You know, But even though 20 years after this was... He still appeared, first appeared in Marvel's Amazing Fantasy issue 15 in 1962, when Peter Parker, a young orphan, is bitten by a radioactive spider and given superhuman strength, speed and agility, as well as the ability to climb walls. But it was in the early 80s when Marvel Comics decided they wanted to bring Spider-Man to the big screen. Uh, Stan Lee himself actually wrote the first screenplay. It was set during the Cold War, and Dr. Octopus was the villain. However, they couldn't quite get the budget they wanted from various studios, so that idea was uh, shelved. Then another studio called the Canon Group heard that there was a character called the Spider-Man, essentially for sale, and so they bought the rights for just under a quarter of a million dollars. But uh, the producers behind this only really heard the name Spider-Man, bought it, and then ran with it. Unfortunately, they didn't read a single comic and then so hired a writer to then create the script based on the idea that they had. 
And unfortunately, the Peter Parker in this script became more of like a werewolf type creature. Uh, once bitten, he turned into like a giant human slash tarantula. Somehow the project even got as far as to hire a director. They hired Toby Hooper, who directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, he was actually brought on to direct until Stan Lee heard about the horror route this film was taking and demanded the project actually be stopped. And luckily, those wishes were respected. So they cut to 1985, and another new script had now been developed. This script was simply called Spider-Man the Movie. Peter, this time, developed his powers by being too close to a particle accelerator with a spider inside of it. Very 1980s sort of body horror there. Tom Cruise was actually brought in, brought in for the role of Peter Parker. And Bob well. Hoskins was going to be Dr. Octopus <laughs> with Catherine Hepburn for Aunt May. And Stan Lee was cast as J. Jonah Jameson. It was given a hefty budget for the time as well. It was given $20 million. However, close to shooting, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, was released. Woof. And it was a massive flop. Um, it was considered a financial failure as well. And so then the budget for Spider-Man the movie was cut from $20 million to $7 million. The director attached at the time, a man named Joseph Zito, decided that the film couldn't be made on that budget and so exited the project. It went into limbo for a little bit before they eventually then sold the rights again to Columbia Pictures. Now in 1993, a man named James Cameron, who I'm sure most people know, wrote a script for a Spider-Man movie. This one was going to maybe push boundaries slightly. Um, it was definitely a more mature take on Spider-Man. Uh, the villains were this time Electro and Sandman. The script featured heavy profanity, violence, and even a sex scene between Peter Parker and Mary Jane on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, James Cameron had just released True Lies at the time, so he was sort of in good favour with the studio and with the public, and there was actually quite some excitement over this project. The role of Peter Parker came down to Leonardo DiCaprio... Charlie Sheen and Edward Furlong uh, because he just played John Connor in James Cameron's Terminator 2. But almost as if history repeated itself, Batman and Robin was released a couple of years into this film's production and development. And surprise, surprise, it was a massive flop and critically destroyed. And then suddenly all studios decided that the superhero genre wasn't being taken seriously anymore and that comic book movies were for kids. And so then it wasn't until 1999 when Sony Pictures held the rights to Spider-Man when they decided to give it another go and they wanted to go big. So they spoke to some of the most respected and sought after directors in Hollywood working at the time and they asked for each director to come in and give their pitch. So they spoke to Tim Burton. Uh, Michael Bay, Ang Lee, even David Fincher, Roland Emmerich, Chris Columbus, M. Night Shyamalan, and Sam Raimi. And it was in January 2000 when Sam Raimi was officially attached as the director of Spider-Man. Now, when pre-production started, they were using kind of like a revised draft from the old James Cameron script. And the villains in this script were the Green Goblin, and you guessed it because he keeps popping up, Doctor octopus 
But after reading the script, Sam Raimi realized there was essentially three origin stories in this script. There was an origin story for Peter Parker and two each for the villains. And he felt that really hurt the film's pace. So he decided to remove Dr. Octopus from the film. Now, another thing, in every single comic book issue of Spider-Man, no matter who wrote him or how many different iterations there have been, once Peter Parker is bit by this spider, he receives all those previously mentioned abilities I said earlier on. But he does not have the ability to shoot web out of his wrists. All these different iter- all these iterations of Peter Parker have had him invent mechanical web shooters in a lab or at home. Now, controversially, Sam Raimi thought that having Peter Parker invent these seemingly like impossible creations would maybe stretch the audience's suspension of disbelief. And then so decided that this version of Peter Parker would organically make spider webs. Jumping ahead a little bit, this film was obviously a hit between both the fans and the critics, but there was a bit of a backlash about the web shooting. Uh, some fans really turned on Raimi uh, for that, but he stuck to his guns. Now for the casting of Peter Parker, the final actors actually came down to Leonardo DiCaprio again, Jude Law, Heath Ledger, James Franco, Joe Manginello, I really hope I've said that right, and Toby Maguire, who had just finished the critically acclaimed but very boring uh, The Cider House Rules. We all know, obviously, that it was Toby Maguire that eventually got the role, but James Franco was instead cast as Harry Osborne, and Joe Manginello was actually cast as Flash Thompson, the school bully. So the final three actors that it came down to all still managed to get roles within the film itself. Now, to portray Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, they considered Nicolas Cage, Jason Isaacs, Isaacs? Jason Isaacs, John Malkovich, Jim Carrey, and obviously Willem Dafoe. Now, Willem Dafoe uh, told Sony and Sam Raimi he would only take the role if he got to wear the Green Goblin suit as he felt a stuntman wouldn't be able to convey the character's necessary body language. I'm sure he regretted that as the suit actually had 580 separate pieces to it and it took close to an hour just to put on. And so, upon release, Spider-Man was the first film ever to pass the $100 million box office in a single weekend in America. The previous record was held by Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That was it received ninety million dollars in its opening weekend. Spider Man destroyed it with one hundred and fourteen million dollars. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times the week after the film was released that said, "While industry executives had expected a strong opening for the film because there was little competition in the marketplace, and pre-release polling indicated intense interest from all age groups, no one predicted that Spider Man would surpass the Harry." potter record now if you actually adjust that uh, adjust that for inflation it is actually the sixth highest grossing comic book film of all time beaten only by some pesky mcu movies only one of which you have seen before colin that was the first avengers the film was so big it actually remained sony's highest grossing ever film until it was finally beaten recently in 2018 with their jumanji reboot which brings us to the big question. Colin, what did you think? Yeah, I, I enjoyed this one, mate. Good. It was, uh, I was definitely aware that I was sort of watching it through a, 
like a nostalgic lens because mm-hmm. it did it did take me back to uh you know the younger days but um, of course but now man like it's just full of iconic moments that have really stuck with me um mm-hmm. and like i remembered a lot of it before i even put it on and it has mm-hmm. been years so the fact that i remembered a lot of the things that happened kind of says it all really yeah, Sam Raimi's really good at creating that sort of iconic imagery that kind of really sticks with you. And um, yeah, that's mm. something I definitely remembered from this film as well. Um, Rob, how was the rewatch for you? I didn't rewatch it. Although I did rewatch it, <laughs> but not <laughs> in the traditional so sense. Okay. Because... Not audio commentary then. <laughs> oh, we got, got a bonus one. Audio commentary facts. Brilliant. Yes, lads. I have bought <laughs> <laughs> I have bought the Blu-ray. Amazing. And listen to the audio commentary. Now the commentary is um is done by Sam Raimi himself, the co-producer Grant Curtis, John Dykstra, who's the visual effects designer, along with uh Scott Stoddyke and Anthony La Molinara, who both worked on the visual effects. The producer, uh, Laura Ziskin, and Kirsten Dunst, who played Mary Jane. And it was a riveting listen. I bet. I love Sam Raimi's director's commentaries. Um, I think I've got like an Evil Dead Blu-ray somewhere where he's provided like three commentaries for the same film. One just him, charismatic. One with Bruce Campbell and one with someone like a producer or something. And yeah, he's so good. I love it. There's a moment where Tobey Maguire is having his crying scene after Uncle Ben's funeral and Sam Raimi says, uh, in this uh, scene, I uh, before we called action, I spoke to Toby and said that he wasn't going to get top billing. And perfectly <laughs> timed, the tear runs down his face. Uh, so, yeah, I think this film is uh, wonderful. I think having a Spider-Man film made by the guy that did the Evil Dead trilogy on paper feels like it shouldn't work. But it completely works. It's mad that a Spider-Man film was also, you know, in and out of various stages of production for like over 15 years, maybe 20 years until we finally got this film. I think it goes to show the crazy nature of Hollywood or filmmaking, I guess, that it could have gone so many different ways. And I'm sure in the vast multiverse out there, there's a Spider-Man film starring Charlie Sheen with Nicolas Cage as the Green Goblin, (laughs) probably both fueled on cocaine, but... We're in the universe uh, with this Spider-Man film, and I'm very glad we are. So, Have either of you seen Sam Raimi's film Dark Man? Yes, with Liam Neeson, yeah. Yeah, so that was the film he made when he, I think he pitched to make a Superman film um, and didn't get it. Mm. So he decided, I'm just going to make my own superhero. <laughs> and like, stylistically, in the way it's shot and a lot of the sort of, energy to it it's very spider-man yeah it's kind of like an audition film for spider-man i'd say it's a comic book ripped off the pages and put onto film uh he's he's a perfect director for these type of films i yeah i agree and yeah dark man's great uh if you haven't seen it audience at home and colin um check it out it's very good so <clears throat> we're not going to go through the film like beat by beat we're, we're going to do broad strokes here and there and we're going to discuss certain aspects of the film before jumping into trivia Maybe more than ever, boys, if I skip over something you want to talk about, let's just stop me and we'll, we'll talk about it and go from there. So let's start the recap.
On a school trip, high school senior Peter Parker visits a Columbia University genetics laboratory with his friend Harry Osborne and his crush Mary Jane Watson. There, a genetically engineered super spider bites him and he falls ill after returning home. The next day, Peter finds he is no longer nearsighted and has developed spider-like abilities. He can shoot webs out of his wrists, he has quick reflexes, superhuman speed and strength, and a heightened ability to sense danger. So Colin, when I said we're doing broad strokes, we are doing broad broad strokes here. How was Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker for you? I know it's a bit of a cliche thing to say when like, an actor or a person was born or made for a role, but mm. I, you can't see anyone else doing it. And I know other people do it. I know that's <laughs> coming later. But I mean, you were saying that Leonardo DiCaprio was up for playing. I mean, could a you imagine times, that? Yeah. No, man. I mean, Leo's great, but I don't think that would have worked. As like Tobey mm. Maguire is the perfect guy for this because he's he's the he's got the kind of nerdy nurse to him that you need. But he's he's just he fits it perfectly. Yeah, and. um yeah, I mean that was a you you covered a lot then in that like couple of sentences. <laughs> it's almost the OG origin story, this isn't it? It's the original, right? Oh yeah. Is, like, I mean, was I guess there would have been other superhero movies before this, but this feel. I mean, the fact we're doing this as a bonus episode is obviously means at least in the Marvel world, this is the first one. Is it? This is this was like the first. I mean, you had Superman. But you said Superman and Batman films would have been out before you had this, right? X-Men before this. Did you? Okay. But but this X-Men was you know, one was before this. This is known as one of the biggies because, like I said, it broke all the records. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, it, it it started a massive interest in both Spider Man and comic book characters too. So I love that you love Toby. That's so good. Here's mm. a question though: um, Is he perhaps too old? Now I well, I love yeah. Toby Maguire <laughs> <I'm just> gonna... <laughs> because Peter Parker is meant to be a high school student. Now I had to read up on this. Toby was 26 when this was filmed. I kind of thought that about all of the high school scenes. At the beginning, I think everyone seemed like they were in their thirties. Yeah, um, Joe Manganiello as uh, Flash yeah, Thompson. Yeah, what was like, that all about? What are you doing? I know. <laughs> yeah, no, that that. But then I think that was. I kind of remember that from a lot of films of that era. Anyway, I remember a lot of the teen comedies that were coming out, like when I was a teenager. They were I never al- teenagers. Yeah, they were always like late twenties playing high school kids in America. So <laughs> I think that's maybe just part of that era of film. Yeah. So like you know, but yeah, it did make me giggle a bit. Yeah, but they yeah. kind of skip, don't they? Because it's in high school for a bit, but then suddenly as the it film jumps goes on. Yeah, you know, Mary Jane's a waitress and Toby's the photographer, and that. So yeah, <laughs> but no, I did think that. Oh. oh, just before I asked him a question, he's jumped in there. I want to hear it. What you got? Um, well, you mentioned there that Mary Jane was a waitress. Something I learned on this audio commentary from uh, Laura Ziskin is she pointed out that the badge that Mary Jane is wearing on her waitress outfit when she reveals to uh, Peter that she's a waitress. Very baldy it is, because it says, try my cream pie. Oh, no. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, He'll never change, and that's why we love him. Me? (laughs) Yes, you. It's not my... I didn't... Put it in the audio commentary <laughs> and giggle about it like Laura Ziskin did. Oh, dear. Well you, well, you still brought it up here and we love you for it. Don't you worry, sir. So, Rob. It's a good fact. It was a very good fact. Thank God it wasn't Save your trivia. Save that for the pub. Yes. There we go. 
how was how what's your thoughts on Mr. Maguire's performance? I think he, like Colin said, I think he's the yeah, he's perfect. I I don't know if he's the perfect Spider Man. Hmm. Well, it's two different things, Rainy isn't it? Spider-Man. Yeah, he's, yeah. Do we prefer him as Peter Parker? or Do we prefer him as Spider Man? I don't think, but it's difficult because we've seen a lot more since. Mm-hmm. I guess we've seen a lot of other takes on it, so you can really contrast and compare. I had no issues with it when I first watched it. This was the perfect casting mm-hmm. for Spider Man without comparisons to anyone else. Yeah, very. So, yeah, I think he's brilliant. He's got that kind of. You really like him, even when he messes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with you there. I do think he's slightly too old for Peter Parker. Um, whether he means to or not, though, he kind of he brings this sort of this sense of wisdom to Peter Parker. This version of Peter Parker feels very mature to me. And I think if you remo- removed the scenes in his high school, you'd have no idea he's meant to be 16 years old. And like you said, Colin, but it's good that they do almost have like a bit of a time shift, Mm. which is odd in a way, because one minute he's in high school (laughs) and the next thing you know, he's selling pictures to like the Daily Bugle. And they don't change anything like... They don't do any makeup or anything like that, right? They all just look exactly the same. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But then at the same time, the progression with the story with Norman Osborn and Greg Gomblin feels like it's happening over the course of a couple of days. Mm. So, I mean, I'm getting away from my point a little bit. Um, but I enjoy Tobey Maguire's performance. I think he's a fine foundation of what Peter Parker and Spider-Man himself can be. We shall continue. Brushing off Uncle Ben's advice that with great power comes great responsibility. Peter considers impressing Mary Jane with a car, so he participates in an underground <laughs> wrestling event to win the money for it and wins his first match against Bonesaw McGraw. Oh, Something's amazing. tickled you, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was giggling so much throughout that scene when he's doing the wrestling, man. It was About, Bruce Campbell as well, wasn't it, doing the introduction? That's good old yeah. Bruce. Love of course. him. Love Mr. Bruce. It's a great uh, way to to bring out the name as well it was a great little turn to to reveal well i guess that was the reveal wasn't it to yeah the audience in, in this world that's yeah, how he got the name yeah. spider-man for sure that was great it's all about randy savage <clears throat> oh my god so he's ready. <laughs> yeah, i knew you were gonna do that i was gonna ask you to do an impression of that <laughs> i got you for three minutes <laughs> three minutes of playtime oh shit oh dear <laughs> Um, he wins his first match against Bonesaw McGraw, but the promoter cheats him out of his earnings. Now, when a burglar robs the promoter's office, Peter allows him to escape in retaliation. And moments later, he discovers Uncle Ben was carjacked and killed by a robber with a handgun. Peter pursues the carjacker only to realise it was the robber he let escape. The carjacker flees but dies after falling out of a window. Now, this wrestling scene was actually funny enough, a bit of a talking point on Twitter, maybe about two weeks ago. And it was really weird that we, I knew we were, gonna, we were gearing up to talk about Spider-Man and suddenly all of Twitter's talking about this scene. Because it was on ITV2 the other night mm. and someone was watching it and noticed the nice costume, did your husband make it for you, line had actually been removed. So let's go deep here for a second, boys, and ask the question, should we be removing potentially offensive lines from older films 
or should we keep them in and just understand that it was maybe a different time back then? So, for example, should Marvel remove the Jackie Chan line from the first Thor movie? What do you guys think? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, off the bat, I would say that this this sort of topic probably deserves a lot longer than a couple of minutes that I'm about to talk about. It's an incredibly kind of nuanced discussion that doesn't really just have a black or white answer. Mm. But I would say that I do have a bit of a pushback around the the idea of changing something that's already happened from a different time. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about maybe educating people about how different things were then. But, you know, where do you draw the line there? Exactly. And, and what is, you know, who's making those decisions of what's offensive and what isn't offensive? And like mm. I said, this is a much deeper conversation that... Yeah needs a lot more um, discussion. But, I mean, if it's a throwaway line like that, I mean, I wouldn't have noticed that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess an argument on the other side could be how much does it add to the story? How much does it change the story? How much does it change the outcome of how people would perceive the film? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I guess my initial response would be I think it's a slippery slope if you start doing that with things from generations that clearly had different thoughts and um yeah you know just culture mm. i guess if we start removing lines that are potentially offensive i think every friends episode is going to be about six minutes long yeah exactly yeah. and um you know when it comes down to all that kind of stuff i think intent is something that really gets glossed over and i think if the intent is pure and you know it's not hate filled then yeah i mean it's a it's a very big topic to talk about mm. on a bonus episode of a podcast yeah. about <laughs> movies but you know I think contextually in the plot as well. So although he doesn't look it, Peter Parker's supposed to be a kid mm. who perhaps doesn't know any better in terms of that kind of thing. And also, you can look at it that he's going up against someone who is the antithesis of a butch alpha. Mm-hmm. Yo, would in, in no way has a feminine side that he would admit. So if he's going to get in the head of an opponent that is pure yeah. testosterone, mentioning something like that, although there'd obviously be nothing wrong with someone having a husband, um, a man having a husband, that would get in the head of someone who is, you know, toxic masculinity pulses through their veins. Yeah. So... I could plot wise, I think he just kind of he's using it as a way to get to rile him up and get him annoyed, mm-hmm. so he makes mistakes. Yeah, and you, you're very right with saying Peter's a kid. This is he says it on the same night that he learns a very big lesson as well. Yeah, interesting, what do you think, mate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what do I think? Um, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think, um, in a nutshell, I think what you said was great when you said who determines what's offensive mm. and i think education is a massive part of this um i think there's a lot of i can't remember whether it's on netflix or disney plus i think it's disney plus there's a couple of films on there now where before it starts there's a little um write-up just on yeah. the screen it just says just letting you know you know this was made in times when maybe views were a little bit different and things like that obviously yeah, sorry. Nowadays, we're all about obviously inclusivity and um, representation and all of that. So, um, I think maybe that's the way to go. Don't change it, but just let just inform people. That- but also, isn't that kind of what age ratings are there for on films anyway? I mean, where 
like I know culturally, like you can't, you know, take a take a horror film or whatever where there might be some really disturbing and horrible stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Like, how's that any different? Yeah, it's true. That's what age ratings are there for, right? I think much like marking your height against the wall as you grow up, mm. you can't see how far you've come unless if you removed all those marks. So if mm. you look to that as a six foot dude and was like, oh. Uh. I'm six foot, but you, you don't have that contextually and how far you've come. So if you start removing all those markers along the way, yeah, um, you start looking. You can't look back and go, "Oh, as a society, we've we've grown since that point to now mm-hmm. in twenty years." Yeah, since this come out. Well, this is why I asked a question, boys, because you have both given very well balanced, intelligent answers. I love that. Uh, so, Colin, here's another question. An easier okay. one, maybe. Um, <laughs> <Is it? laughs> should... I could talk about that shit all day, but that's a different podcast in itself. I love it. Um, should Peter have actually killed the carjacker and his uncle's killer? Or was it was it right to take maybe the easy way out of having him just trip and fall? You know, I think if he had killed him, then you could have always then had a sort of a through line and a, and a sort of subplot of him having to deal with the fact that he's just killed someone because like you've said already he's a young kid and Uh i mean let alone i mean someone falling to their death from a and you've just witnessed your uncle being killed there's a lot to fucking unpack anyway isn't it but um yeah one thing i will say about the rewatch is from memory i always thought there was a lot more uncle ben in it before he died i always remembered that sort of relationship feeling much bigger than it was Mm. and i don't know if that was maybe to do with me just being younger and i just kind of got engrossed a lot quicker Mm. in the film itself but there really wasn't that much of him i thought he he was good like the the chemistry was clearly there and and it was good when he was on screen but i mean there wasn't a lot that obviously you have that scene in the in the when he drops him off and there's that you know the 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 iconic yeah yeah the iconic dialogue and all that which is cool but that was I. I was actually quite surprised on the rewatch. I was like, "Damn, is that all we got from Uncle Ben before he dies?" It was. It was a bit of a surprise, to be honest. Uncle Ben reminds me of George, in that there's that scene where he's looking through the paper, and he's like, "God, damn oh yeah, it, mate, even the computers are going to have this yeah. these days." <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Good. Thank you for that. Uh, but You're no, um, I, I, I uh, agree. I really, really like um, uh, Cliff Robertson yeah, as Uncle Ben in this film. I think he brings this really classic sensibility to the film. I think it's a wonderful performance. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, we did lose him in 2011 at the grand old age of 88. So, Colin, I think I'll ask you the same question about the, the carjacker. Was it the right way for have, to have him? Because I think it, it feels a bit clumsy um, in the film to have him trip and fall and then die would it have worked better if he'd have pushed him or did they get it right no i guess you're asking rob but you said colin you said did colin, i really yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You said I... colin i'll ask you the same question yeah. and then literally <laughs> and then the, same, the question. same question yeah. <laughs> i meant you rob i think what's important to the plot is that he wanted to kill him and he got his wish so it's like he still has to deal with that he still has to deal with the fact that he um he let anger take over in that moment Mm -hmm. and he still made the mistake in regards to if he'd done the responsible thing and done the right thing to start off with instead of it not being my problem his uncle wouldn't have died so I don't know if it does unless like you like Colin said you was going to explore it in on a psychological front but I think that maybe it would have got too packed Mm -hmm. yeah trying to sort of unpack all that in the origin film 
Like it. Like it a lot. Let's continue. So, meanwhile, Harry's scientist father, Norman Osborn, the founder and owner of Oscorp, tries to secure an important military contract. He experiments on himself with an unstable performance-enhancing chemical and goes insane, killing his assistant. The crazed Norman then interrupts a military experiment by Oscorp's corporate rival and ends up killing several people in the process. Colin Willem fucking Defoe. Um, <laughs> too much or just right? Because he goes big in oh. this. How is he for you? I mean, I was thinking about in the uh, episode of the pod that we did where I added in the farmland and oink, oink, oink uh, <laughs> stuff in the background. And I did think that for a lot of this film, we could just have some farmland music <laughs> in the background because it was quite <laughs> hammy. But that being said... I, I I like Willem Dafoe a lot, mm-hmm. and um, I think with it being a Sam Raimi film, and it worked. It, there were times where it got a little much, a little bit much for me. Right. It, he played it very sort of like it was straight out of a cartoon, mm-hmm. and but there were some scenes that I thought he nailed. And overall, I'm a big fan of of him. To be honest with you, Good. it did make me smile. Good. But yeah, he does, he, does, he does push it, though, don't he? <laughs> he goes he does big. push it. He goes, he goes big. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, Rob, um, was Defoe the right choice? Would you have preferred to, you know, they went with a Cage or a Malkovich? Oh, could you imagine Nick Cage? <laughs> no, he's definitely the right choice. <laughs> Nicholas Cage would oh, have been... Oh, that would have been amazing. I mean, I'd still love to see it. Yeah. Me too. Um, but Nicholas Cage, no, Willem Defoe was the perfect, because he manages to balance that the pre-serum mm. like the dual personality thing really well or when he's Defoe or DeFriend <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just love it I love it the, the, the turn and when he's that whole scene talking into the mirror could be oh, lesser great. hands yeah, yeah, yeah. could be but just the, the voice and the switching between the two mm-hmm. he, I think he's great yeah. I love him he's one of my favourite comic book villains also, he's got such a like a unique face. Oh yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. and to and it just, that for me is perfect for a villain. Like just to have this sort of like you know just the bone structure is just almost like nothing you've ever seen before. And, and I think he's that, that good in that mirror scene as well. You, it's almost as if the bone structure in his face changes, changes. Yeah, when yeah, he's playing yeah, a different yeah. version of that character. That's how he's he's transformative in that scene. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I, I read this somewhere that he wears different teeth. Yes, huh. he does. In the scenes yeah. where he's really? uh, between huh. Norman and Goblin. Nice. nice. Which obviously would change the way he talks and yeah. his physicality. Very, as very well. subtly done. But if you look, when it changes, the teeth change as well. It's such mm. a good decision. Um, I mean, as far as what, what I think, I mean, it's Willem Dafoe. We've said it. Yeah. He's one of our greatest actors. Um, I'm sure it's like it's a combination of his fearlessness of an actor and Sam Raimi's direction, that we have this really deranged, but also sort of empathetic performance, which is really turned up to 11 at points. Oh, yeah. But it's a comic book movie. And, you know, we, we know Sam Raimi doesn't tend to do understated as well. So even though I did actually watch his film, um, I'm sure you've seen it, Rob, A Simple Plan the other night. Yeah. First time I've ever yeah, seen good. it. And that, for Sam Raimi, is very understated. But I, I still very much Antichrist. enjoyed it. 
Oh, God, yeah, Willem Dafoe and Antichrist. <laughs> Jesus Christ. While we are talking of uh, old Willem, mm-hmm. I think it's important that we um, do a... Oh. Audio commentary facts. Love it. So Raimi said of Willem Dafoe that Willem did an amazing job in the film, which we all agree with. He said, we really wanted Peter to look up to him and see him as a surrogate father in a lot of ways. Mm. Do you think that works? Do you think that comes across that he's like a surrogate father? Do you think they could have played on that more? They definitely could have played on it more. Obviously, Harry is like the brother figure to him. So it's a leap to say that he's like almost a surrogate father position. But I don't think they played on it too much. It It feels almost like mentor at times than father. Yeah, I think maybe... Osborne sees him as a surrogate son because he's everything you would want in a son, Ooh. but I don't think that's necessary. As we learn, that's not the other way around, yeah. I didn't feel it from... I didn't see any sort of Peter Parker looking up to him like that, but definitely on the other side. And also, how horrendous yeah. is he to his own son? Yeah. To, to, oh, my God. <laughs> some horrible yeah. things, man. They're all the same. <laughs> some deep cuts, yeah. Uh, yeah, love that. That um, whole scene where he's like, kick it to the curb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they make it that everyone else can hear it as it's happening. It's so good. Um, I will say this, yeah. though. I think it's a shame that he spends so much of the movie under a mask. Because, as we've said, he is such an expressive actor. It kind of feels a little redundant to cast Willem Dafoe and then put him under a mask. Oh, well. Um, we move on. Upon graduating, Peter begins using his abilities to fight injustice, donning a spandex costume and a persona of Spider-Man. Now, J. Jonah Jameson, the publisher of the Daily Bugle newspaper, hires Peter as a freelance photographer since he is the only person providing clear images of Spider-Man. The Goblin offers Spider-Man a place at his side, but Peter refuses. Now, let's discuss maybe the supporting cast a little bit then. So, another a couple of more questions for you, Colin. Mm. Um, how did you find the performances of Kirsten Dunst and James Franco? And were you invested in the, shall we say, love triangle between Peter, Harry and Mary Jane? I thought Kirsten Dunst was, was really good as Mary Jane. I felt like she kind of fell into a little bit too much of always being the person sort of dangling off a building and most you know she was very damsel in distress a lot of it Um, as the trilogy actually goes on um that was one thing she did was quite outspoken about oh really yeah yeah but i think i think she's like a really a really great um actress Mm -hmm. and uh the love triangle it was fine i mean uh, it didn't really stand out to me as being one of like the massive points of the film no um, James Franco, I thought was cool in it. I mean, I think it's it's kind of difficult for me to comment just because I've already seen the film a bunch. So, mm-hmm. I definitely, when I was a kid, that sort of that love triangle part didn't really pull on me. It, it was it felt obvious that it was going in the direction that it went in with the sort of relationship part. Yeah, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. It felt like they were trying to kind of get a bit more of a wedge in between um, Harry Osborne and and. Uh, peter parker throughout the film and i don't really know how much that came through if i'm totally honest but i thought the performances were all good from those guys nice what about you rob i always thought that the whole harry and mj thing was a bit wet it didn't really work Mm. but then again i suppose it's supposed to be because you want to root for peter to get with her 
but I like all the... I don't know why I always used to really find this funny. And um, we don't talk, talk often enough about Rosemary Harris in, as Aunt May. Mm. Maybe we'll get to her. But when she's in hospital and she's doing that whole scene where she's... The scene seems to go on for hours mm. where she's talking about how Peter and MJ and all this sort of thing. And she does this whole thing of, like, um, talk about when she moved in. And she says... Um, you you looked at me and you said Aunt May? Oh. Aunt May? Is that an angel? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Peter's like Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> Would it be so bad if she knows everybody else knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's true. Everyone knows. As soon as you're watching it, you're thinking it's the, the Harry thing's a minor sort of yeah. spanner in the works, but it's not the thing that's going to... Um, really, the other person... It's more of a love tr- square because she's in love with Spider-Man before she's in love with Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's more... Peter's got that thing of, oh, well, she loves Spider-Man, she doesn't really <laughs> love me, but mm. I think that's more interesting than the Harry stuff. Yeah. I did wake up my fiance whilst watching this for the first time because it's been years since I've seen it. One line came up and I just remembered it. And I, for some reason, I shouted along with the line because it's such a beautifully just silly little line. And it's with um, Aunt May as well. It's when she's praying beside her bed. And she's like, <laughs> and deliver us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the Green Goblin comes through and he's like, finish it. She's like, from evil. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and then when she was in the hospital bed afterwards, just making those fucking wailing sounds. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that those was, uh, eyes. Those big yeah. yellow eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that, big that is quickly me. followed up by my favourite Defoe bit, <sighs> which is that, can Spider-Man come out to play? Yeah. So good. <laughs> so good. Oh, ridiculous. Oh, yeah, absolutely ridiculous, but I love it. Ah, at Thanksgiving dinner, Peter's Aunt May invites Mary Jane, Harry, and Norman. Uh, During the dinner, Norman sees a wound on Peter's arm and realises Peter's identity, thinking the only way to defeat Peter is to attack those special to him. Norman later attacks May, as we've just said, from evil, (laughs) forcing her to be (laughs) hospitalised. Harry, who is dating Mary Jane, sees her holding Peter's hand to comfort him and presumes she now has feelings for him. Devastated, Harry tells his father that Peter loves Mary Jane, unknowingly revealing Spider-Man's biggest weakness. Norman holds Mary Jane and a Roosevelt Island tram car full of children hostage alongside the Queensborough Bridge. He forces Peter to choose whom he wants to save and drops them both. Now, Colin, the film is over 20 years old. You've seen it a few times, but is this set piece still effective? Were you, were you still invested? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's cool, but, but I, I mean, I can't, again, I can't think of what I was thinking as a kid watching it, but y- you know that he's going to save both of them. I've, to me, it does that wonderful movie magic where for that one split second, you're like, he's fucked. Oh, do you think? Uh, see, that didn't. That I didn't. And I didn't feel that. To me, that's always the beauty of film that you'll always get a moment like that, and it always reminds me. In, I, I doubt you've seen it, Colin. That Paddington One. 
No, definitely haven't seen. I knew it, you no. There's one moment where Paddington is climbing up <laughs> a like a, a chimney, like, like a, a mm. very long chimney shaft. There's fire underneath him, and he almost gets to the top. And the villain does something to him, and he suddenly slow motion starts falling down. And in that one moment, I'm in the cinema surrounded by a bunch of kids watching a PG rated Paddington movie, and I'm like, he's fucked. It's done. <laughs> and to me, that's the quickest. But then as soon as you realise it, you're like, of course they wouldn't. But to me, that's the magic of movies. Because in that split second, to me, they're about you're to burn Paddington alive. Yeah. I get, I get that. If that's what it makes you feel, mm-hmm. then that's great. I personally just didn't. I just thought, ah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely thought it this time because I've seen the film before. Of course. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, uh, yeah, I, maybe I felt like that when I watched it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um but to me, the the scene between Peter Parker and well, Spider Man and Green Goblin, should I say, mm-hmm. the final fight scene for that is is where it we was like, will get we'll, we'll get that, that shortly. Yeah. Uh, so, Rob, any thoughts on this set piece? I would be very interested to hear from any listeners that watched this at the time who are big comic book fans, because the setup for this set piece is involves uh, in the comics at least is very famous and involves Spidey trying to save someone but that he loves and it going disastrously wrong mm-hmm. and oh. them dying. So I wonder if people watching it who had read the comics at the time thought they might be doing that. Huh. Look. I I personally would have preferred it if if the <laughs> if it had, you know, been a Both bit more ballsy <laughs> and one of the, Yeah, but you know, it's like that's with films like this when you know you know it's a kids' film. Technically, um, I have just reached you know they're over. they're not going to do it. Sorry, Colin. Yeah. I've just reached over Go to grab it. a poster next to what I record every single one of our episodes by, and is it a framed Spider-Man comic issue, Goblin's Last Stand, where mm-hmm. it is very similar to what Grob has just mentioned. That um, well, it is that it is it that, is that it's story, the yeah. death of someone. I won't say their name. But uh, yeah, so they've definitely homaged that, and uh, that's always yeah, that's always next to me when we record. <laughs> um, the other thing I find interesting about it is the time in which this came out. Obviously, the year after uh, September 11th, yes, uh, a lot of the original marketing had um, there was a helicopter escaping a robbery, and they suddenly get caught in midair, and Spider-Man had webbed them between the two towers. So obviously, oh shit. That marketing, you know, it's still available to watch, but it, they yeah. they stopped circulating it. Yeah. But obviously, this came out a year after. So, some for me, that whole New York—you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us—thing with the context of when it came out just rings a lot more. Well, I just got goosebumps then because can you imagine seeing that in a cinema in New York? Christ, yeah. Like one year after the September 11th attacks. Well, less than a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Out in like the, the May or whatever, yeah. Mm. And suddenly there's a villain in New York Fuck, and yeah. they suddenly get the line, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Like, well, it's you mess with New York, you mess with all of us. Yes. Yeah, this yeah. is something like that, isn't it? You're, yeah. It does mention them being, it being New yeah. York as well, specifically. And Spider-Man is known for being, as much as Batman is, has Gotham... Superman as Metropolis and you know, all these heroes have specific places that are iconic to them. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man is New York. It's your friendly right? neighbourhood Spider-Man. Yeah, so it's. Um, I think that was probably a real 
big moment at the time. And every time I watch it now, I kind of try and imagine like what that must have meant at the time to cool. people who were watching it in that sort of who had lived through. Well, obviously we lived through it, but not in the same way that someone who lives in New York did. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, as well during this set piece, I actually I love the shot of. Um, during this exact moment as well of spider-man's eyes um yeah, you know cool. one in one eye is the reflection of the tram car full of the children falling out of the sky the reflection in his other eyes mary jane falling um it's a stunning shot really puts you in the shoes of peter parker and the film really convinces you that he has that split second to make a horrible decision and by all by framing it in that way Sam Raimi's making us question what we would do as well. Um, yeah, I love this shot so much. And close-up of eyes is something that Raimi does in uh, most of his films. And here, he just proves that's not a gimmick. He really makes it work thematically. It's pure too. visual storytelling. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's a wonderful... You, you don't have him pondering his choice. You've got it in a split-second visual. It says everything it needs to in that one shot, that you know that he's got that horrible decision to make, yep. So, but of course, Colin guessed it. Peter saves both Mary Jane and the tram car. Um, Norman then throws him on to an into an abandoned building and brutally beats him. Now, when the goblin says how he shall kill MJ, Peter regains his strength and gains the upper hand. Norman reveals himself to Peter and begs for forgiveness, while subtly getting his glider ready to impale Peter from behind. Warned by his spidey sense, Peter dodges the attack and the glider, the glider the glider impales Norman instead. Norman tells Peter not to reveal his identity as the goblin to Harry before dying. Peter takes Norman's body back to the Osborne house just as Harry walks in and believing Spider-Man to have killed his father, pulls a gun on him, but he escapes. So, Colin, Sam Raimi decides not to have our final set piece as this big, epic fight scene. All that epicness is done and left behind in the uh, bridge rescue sequence. And instead, like you just mentioned, we have a fairly brutal one-on-one fight between Peter and Norman, or the Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. And it is a fight to the death, with, like I said, Peter only being saved by his Spidey sense. Now, this is a big massive action blockbuster did they blow it too early in the film should the bridge sequence have been the final sequence or were they right to scale it back for this final fight scene i mean i I would say they were right to do it i really like the fact that there was literally no one else in any of it it was just Mm one-on-one and it was a pretty brutal fight you know it was literally it wasn't gadgets Mm. it wasn't gizmos it wasn't things fucking flying around in the background it was just one-on-one punching the shit out of each (laughs) other blood you know like i love the uh, spider-man's mask being ripped up the way it was and yeah man it was that's why i said like the um the scene the previous scene with the bridge just got overshadowed by this for me i felt like i felt like um this really uh, took over Mm. and I, i loved it Good. And brutal is the best way to sum it up. It was a brutal fight scene for for yeah. a, like a comic book film. Yeah. You know, it was quite it was quite brutal. If I remember correctly, there's not a ton of score in that scene as well. It's like just yeah. just the fighting really. But from the uh, audio commentary fact, um, they had to cut the blood. There was a lot of blood, more blood in <laughs> it. So when he does this punch and and Peter sort of sprays a load of spit towards the camera mm. that was initially blood and mm. they basically had to recolor it in post to try and get a lower age rating mm. but it's um 
I mean, yeah, it's great. And it, yeah, I love the um, Defoe in that whole sequence. There's so many cool moments that I love. There's the like you said with the um, sort of taunting about Mary Jane when he's like, "And now that you've really pissed me off," <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "We're well, to finish her nice and slow." <laughs> Just so good, and um, the little O before the glider hits him. Uh, yeah, always gets me. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> oh. Uh, speaking of the age rating you were talking about a minute ago, this was one of the very, very first films to get a 12A rating in the UK. Um, because before this, I think it was just PG 12, 15 and mm-hmm. 18 in the UK. There was no such thing as a 12A. Um, so they actually did a little test in early 2001 in the UK. Um, they released, uh, they were decided to do it in one city, a couple of cinemas in one city, give certain film um, ratings, what they called at the time PG-12, similar to a PG-13 in America. The city they actually picked was Norwich. We... Uh, yeah, uh, um, a, a city very close to myself and Colin, where we grew up anyway. Um, and yeah, it was called the Norwich Test. It proved successful. So then the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, then introduced a 12A certificate. I think Spider-Man was like the second or third film to get a 12A. The first one was The Born Identity. So um, that was going to be my trivia for uh, later on, but I, I found something else instead. Um, but yes, this is this that got the, the, the 12A rating. Now, in terms of this final fight scene as well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure um, this isn't going to... This is just silly. Uh, but I'm pretty sure Norman impales himself through the nutsack here. Am I correct? Because he does. <laughs> that, that glide is very, very low. Um, yeah. But ball bags aside, um, Willem Dafoe does so much in this scene. And he especially does so much at the end of this scene with just three words. Don't tell Harry. Um, it's a devastating last three words for my villain here and yet again another dilemma that peter parker has found himself in because that's what always the comic books and stan lee always got right with peter parker they always put him in impossible situations with impossible dilemmas and you're constantly reminded that peter parker is just a kid having to deal with these situations and problems that no kid should ever have to deal with and i think that's a lovely one to end it on as well um continuing at norman's funeral Harry swears vengeance towards Spider-Man, whom he deems responsible for his father's death. Mary Jane confesses to Peter that she is in love with him. Peter, however, feels that he must protect her from the unwanted attention of his enemies, so he hides his true feelings and tells Mary Jane that they can only be friends. As Peter leaves, he recalls Ben's words and accepts his new responsibility as Spider-Man. So just like I said, Peter Parker, again, makes that difficult decision to not be the one, to not be with the one that he loves, instead realising if he continues to be Spider-Man, then his loved ones will always be in danger. Colin, did you appreciate that sort of downbeat ending? Something tells me you did, you miserable bastard. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely did, yeah. um, I did, because it wasn't what you'd expect. Mm. And I love that. I love the fact that it wasn't exactly a like a it wasn't a sad ending it was it was a very mature stance for peter parker to take yeah. throughout the whole thing and i thought hmm. the scene as a whole was just really well done i love the fact that i mean i thought it was a bit much that she went straight in with the i love you that that felt like it did well because you know the, like like rob was saying earlier 
she loved Spider-Man, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least it felt like there was more of that. So it, it, the fact that she suddenly realised that she loved Peter Parker was a little bit of a like, oh, you love him, do you? Damn. <laughs> but um, I thought that was cool. And then the kiss was great. And then obviously, you know, she sort of figures it out as he's walking away that he might, you know, that, that yeah. you can see after the kiss, there's like a glimmer and they're like, oh, I feel oh. like I've already... You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, oh, I feel like I might have already kissed these, those lips before. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I really liked it. And I did like the fact that Peter Parker was sort of like, I mean, it must have been, it's, yeah, it was really good. Really good to the fact that it's even making me think how that must feel to finally have the person that you've loved all your life turn around and tell you that they love you, but you have to go, fuck. Yeah, we can't do I this. I just can't do it because I've got this fucking Spider-Man bullshit now, you know? <laughs> I loved it. Good. That should have been the last line. Yeah. <laughs> As he's walking away. Fuck. Got this fucking Spider-Man, this Spider-Man, bullshit. Spider-Man bullshit. Cut to Chad Kroger. Yeah. <laughs> On a roof somewhere. I'm so high. <laughs> oh, uh, Jesus. Rob, any thoughts on the ending? Oh, well, I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, like you say, everything that... Um, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Excelsior! <laughs> Everything that Stan Lee would have wanted, baby. Colin, and, did um, you spot him? Oh, sp- sorry, Rob. I did, I did. He was on the... Uh, what were they doing? There was like a, It was the ceremony bit, the weren't parade. it? The parade. With all... The, yeah, that yeah. parade going on, I did. He was at the he, uh, Macy Gray's day. Oh, yeah, parade. that was random, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but I think that was a that's a kind of generational thing as well because I do remember there being a period of time where random bands and artists and would singers always and that would just pop be playing up their music yeah. on the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, funny. <laughs> yeah, he pulls uh, a a young girl's about to get hit with uh, debris out of the way mm-hmm. as a hero. Yeah, I love the ending. Um, and plus, I'm a sucker for the end swinging sequence as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's but even for the even now I'd say actually it hasn't aged awfully. I think, like, it, it's still, obviously, you can tell it's 20 years old, yeah. but I don't think it's the worst CG or no. sort of sequence ever because it's mixed with that sort of um, practical reference for, like photography they got of swinging through yeah. the city and, and things. Like, yeah, I think it's a great way to end mm. it. There's, speaking of ageing well, I, I do agree. It, it, looks, it looks okay, yeah. There's one moment, I think it's after the said parade sequence, where... Um, He's swinging away with um, Mary Jane, and she is clearly clinging on to a mannequin. It's incredible <laughs> watching it back. It looks uh, it looks pretty bad here. Um, so, any final thoughts, lads, or anything else you want to talk or go through? Anything I've missed? Uh, there, there was just a couple of little moments throughout that I think are worth noting. Mm. Some some of the iconic bits. I, I love the. I love when Peter Parker first starts realizing his powers and he's in his bedroom. I think that scene's really memorable. Mm-hmm. I also like the the some of the bits in the high school when like when he catches all the stuff on the tray yeah. and she slips over. Oh, that was iconic, a very, yeah. very iconic thing. Uh, the kiss, fuck man, the upside about the kiss. down kiss. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's got to be up there in in sort of top five, top ten lists of all time great Hollywood kisses. I would I completely say. Completely like agree. It did make me laugh a little bit how it just completely started pissing it down so uh, we could see our nipples. 
right beforehand. <laughs> convenient. That felt, yeah. that felt a little convenient to me. Um, Apparently, it was an absolute no. nightmare to film as well, though, because all the water was just going up his nostrils because he's upside down. <laughs> yeah. So he oh, I can imagine that isn't a comfortable way to kiss someone. And yeah. you can see it in the film. He's got two little puddles in his nose. It's, it looks awful. <laughs> he must have been so uncomfortable. Oh, and I guess the only other thing that we haven't is is um, what's his name. J.K. Simmons oh, and the Daily Bugle. I want that God. shit as a sitcom. Can we get that as a sitcom? Yeah. Sam Raimi, <laughs> can we do something there? Because that was amazing. He does listen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Evil Dead. <laughs> we've said this word so many times this episode, and maybe it shows just how powerful this film is. But yet, that performance is iconic. Oh, so funny. Like... Brilliant. He's so good. I was laughing my head off, man. He's so good when he's just tossing around his cigar <laughs> after he says things and stuff. Yeah, have me, have me laughing a lot. Yeah, he's absolutely incredible. Um, could you imagine having the daunting task of having to recast J. Jonah Jameson for another Spider-Man movie? Where do you yeah, begin? Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Um, Rob, over to you. Any final thoughts? Anything I've missed? Well, boys, I've got quite a lot of... Uh facts that i've got laid on the floor that i'm gonna bust out so go for it get ready for one last trump i get terrified just in case he brings out one of mine because i've got one for the end so uh the web that the spider was hanging from that the spider then bit uh peter parker of you take it for granted that everything's CG these days, but that was made from a microfiber wire and a glue gun to make it show up visibly on camera. Nice. Oh. Brilliant. Also, on that, that thread, when the spider runs away underneath the um, cabinet sort of thing after it's bitten, that was a real um, spider that they basically had these little shells that they could put on the abdomen and they could paint. So they painted this shell in uh, red and blue... <laughs> and then put that on the body of a spider. Oh, my God. Mad. That's incredible. In relation to... You're sweating, George. You're so worried have, that one I'm, of these is going <laughs> to... I'm panicking. So Colin mentioned that um, he, he loved the bit where Toby Maguire catches everything that is thrown in he's the air. He's done it. Yeah. He's done it. Go on. Has he? Mm-hmm. Do you know how they... That, that's not a, a, a digital effect at all. That is a physical practical effect where they had a sort of form of glue underneath the tray and under each of those items and toby Maguire caught all of them nice jordan <sighs> affy no, get searching well, i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> get have to find something up, so quick but uh, all right screw um, it to continue on with what rob was saying i actually didn't even stumble across this trivia this was from watching the film I, I don't think whether I was watching it just with like my film student eyes on or something like that, but when he slips and he catches all the items on the tray, I, I, was, I, I paused it, and I was like, that doesn't look like CGI. So mm-hmm. I actually had to Google it. I was like, surely there's an article out there somehow, somewhere, as to, like, to explain this to me, because I was baffled. And um, yeah, it was all practical. So what they nice. did is they used um, sticky glue, to for toby's hand to the tray so the tray would never move from his hand the jelly and the sandwich were already glued to the plate if you actually look at the shot they're still they they're on the plate before you even see them land but everything else he actually 
catches. It was Sam Sam Raimi's idea to do it all in that take without CGI. And the take you see in the film is take 156. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, they did it and they, they managed to finally get the shot and it's a beautiful shot and commitment. And now I'm fucked. I've got to find a fact. Yeah. I've got uh, two more that I'll throw out quick. So you haven't got too long. <laughs> he also um, hasn't got another. He hasn't got the two that you're about to get out. Either. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> so when Bruce Campbell was doing his cameo, Sam Raimi on the audio commentary said that he really wished he could have punished Bruce Campbell more in this film <laughs> than he actually got to do. And talking of cameos, did you notice a certain cameo from Xena Warrior Princess or Lucy Lawless as the actress? Is Even known? I didn't. Mm mm. So she is the woman, when they're doing the sort of talking heads of New Yorkers, who says, a guy of eight arms sounds hot. Um, and of course, um, Xena Warrior Princess was a show that was produced by Sam Raimi. Nice. There was also a cameo from Jim Norton, who's a New York stand-up comic, in that little bouncing clips. In that, is he the guy who goes, he stinks and I don't like him? Uh, I can't actually remember I what he so. said, but I was like, oh, nice, Jim Norton got a little cameo. I like the New York police officer in that bit that goes, uh, something crazy whacker do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did love how they really sort of made you remember that it was all set in New York throughout the whole film. Mm. There was a lot of moments like that. New York like was that. a character in it yeah, as well. Did you yeah, say that, his that name was, was nice. Jim Norton? Jim Norton, yeah. Just read the fact, mate. Jim Norton improvised a line. He stinks and I don't like him. Oh, it nice. It was improvisation. Can that be my fact? Well, no, it's rubbish, isn't it? Well, Colin got there yeah. before I also you. already knew it, so Rob's definitely going to No, no, it's not my fact. It's not my fact. Uh, right, I should really move on the podcast. Um, so, uh, a little wrap-up for me. I guess I think I've said everything that I needed to say. Um, like I said, we know the different amount of many different iterations of the film we could have had, and the fact that this is a Spider-Man movie that we got and that was made, I think, is a damn near miracle. I think Sam Raimi, he brings, like, a genuine, like, comic book style to the film and he really also understands and gets like the euphoria and the rush it must be to be spider-man himself considering it's now over 20 years old i don't think the film has dated too much and actually i can't wait until we watch spider-man 2 which i don't think is going to be too much longer so um it was good to come back to it so go on in um off the cuff colin what are you going to give this out of five I think I'll give it a four. Mm. And the only reason it's not higher is because one thing I haven't really mentioned is I really didn't like the Green Goblin um, outfit, the costume. I hated the fact that you couldn't see his face and his mouth move in all of scenes. We kind of touched on it earlier. Mm. Like that really, it, he looked like a he looked like an action figure. Did, you, did it remind you of Power screen. Rangers? A little bit. It did and, me. And, and even even in that last fight scene that was so good, it almost looked like the costume was. It, it it just became very aware to me that he was wearing a costume at that point. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you're when you're at that moment of a film, you don't really want those reminders kind of taking you out of the of the um Yeah. Know. So yeah, that would be really I think yeah, that would probably be one of the only things Okay. Um that took it down a lot. And there are some there's some dated moments in there and that, but no. I think a four's pretty solid. Nice. Um Rob. Colin may as well have just um, spoke for the both of us there because I think he summed up everything I feel about it. I would give it four stars as well. 
How about you, George? Um, I think it's going to be a four as well. I can't give it a five. I think there's a couple of elements they try and introduce in the film that maybe feel a little underbaked or half-baked. Like, there's an attempt at a love triangle, which I may be given another draft of the script or maybe another five to ten minute screen time could have they could have maybe made something more effective out of it but for the most part the villain's great it's a wonderful origin story full of great iconic shots and sam raimi shoots the shit out of it so um and great score as well by danny elfman can't not forget the score really really good score as mm. well um four out of five for me you know too much for your own good now that's what i call you so trivia time rob it has trivia. to be you first because i'm still looking and panicking <laughs> <laughs> oh, just before we do it is this score is this score adding to the overalls nope. this is i mean it has to don't it no nah. it's not going to be nah. included in the mcu score this is pride only colin brain fair enough all right we can still keep score of it but it won't be it'll be like a separate it won't add to what this would be the, the bonus trivia champion. Yeah, um, gives George extra chance to win. <laughs> <laughs> Norwich friend. <laughs> right. So my trivia. You said earlier, Colin, that you really enjoyed the transformation scene of um, when he's getting his powers for the first time in his bedroom, um, and that used uh, early sort of body double sort of to make him look skinny and emaciated and really ill when he was going through the transformation. But there's also a lot of sort of almost like horror tropes when he's on the floor and he's sweaty and feverish. There's like flashes of skulls and snakes and all kinds of weird stuff. There's a close-up shot of an eye. Sam Raimi admitted, one, that is a trope of his, using close-ups of eyes. But he's also very inspired by horror films from sort of European backgrounds, Italy and, and Spain. And um, so he used a, a bit of stock footage for the shot of an eye that has a spider in it um, from a film called The Beyond that's directed by someone called Lucio Fulci. And it, in the UK, this was uh, included as one of the famous video nasties, which were a group of sort of European horror films that were censored and banned from being shown in the UK. And in in that scene, there's like follows on from that shot of the eye that a spider crawls out of someone's retina, and it's a you know it's real grim and gruesome and brilliant. But also, much like Mr. Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead was one of these video nasties in the UK and was banned for a short time. Nice, nice. I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well. Hmm. I've had to do a little <laughs> bit of Googling on this as well. But my fact is we've already just uh, acknowledged how incredible Willem Dafoe is in this film. Now, at the beginning, during um, one of the main... Uh, one of the beginning sequences of the film, when Norman receives news from uh, Oscorp, he's having the boardroom meeting, and he finds out he's actually being dismissed, essentially, from his own company sam raimi went over to him because he felt like the scene wasn't entirely working and as a test to willem dafoe as an actor told him in just a couple of seconds after we tell you you're being dismissed i want norman and you acting wise to go through all five stages of grief 
in about three seconds. So in about three seconds, he actually nailed it. It was one of the first takes they went with in the film. He goes through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. All about 30 seconds before receive oh, that scene was filmed about 30 seconds before he received that direction and still nailed it the panic bad, in my mate. voice throughout <laughs> yeah. all of that <laughs> i think you uh, went through the five stages I yeah I was gonna say, what, what stage are you at mate uh, depression um, and acceptance i'm on verging yeah. between the two i think the acceptance has to come now mate and you know what it's gonna be <laughs> rob you get the first bonus trivia point Okey-dokey. well done mate okie dokie i'll Thank take you very it much that was a good fact, though, George. Yeah, it was a good fact. And the fact, the fact that you pulled it out so fast, I commend you. Thank you. Jesus Christ. He's good on Google. Mm. <laughs> he is. That's the second time now, though, that Rob started saying his it's trivia. the second time in a row, George's, I think. George's face has gone up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> proud of my little trade one as well because i didn't read you know that's not an imdb thing that's not a googling thing that was me literally watching the film and going i wonder how they did that and i researched it and it's good as well it was on the audio commentary as well obviously okay it's good as well because i mentioned that as being one of like the iconic moments so you would have and as soon as you said it i thought i've fucking got this little grin (laughs) Mm. well yeah Yeah. as soon as you said it i thought i mentioned that before we get to the (laughs) trivia so, thanks for listening to our first bonus episode. Our next bonus episode, which will likely, I'm going to say that word again, drop in a few weeks' time, will of course be Spider-Man 2. But our next episode will be right back on schedule watching Captain America Civil War. Colin, you are not ready. Colin, say bye. See you later, everyone. Bye-bye. Rob, say bye. Bye. Stay safe, stay well, stay nerdy. Bye. Next time we meet, let it be in peace and friendship. This is as far as you're going to get tonight. Such valuable stuff. All in a nice work. Sweet dreams, little friends. Look out! Oh, he's escaping! I fear we have not seen the last of it.